our folks in Kansas would love to be registering people right now, but they cannot because they could be thrown in jail. That is what is happening in the United States in 2021. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sarah Adello, who's the outgoing executive director of the Alliance for Youth Action, a nationwide network of organizations building the political power of young people. Sarah returns to the show right before National Voter Registration Day on the 28th to catch us up on what she and her organization have been doing since the end of 2018 and how she sees youth today politically. Sarah also discusses how and why she is making way for a new executive director. So after Quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sarah Adello of the Alliance for Youth Action. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Sarah. Uh, welcome back to the show. Would you mind, even though you've been here and we've had a full episode with you, just remind people who you are and, and where you come from? Yeah, absolutely. It's good to be back with you. A little different than last time, last time being in my office, but I'm Sarah Adalo. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the executive director of the Alliance for Youth Action. I'm the outgoing executive director. We are a network of youth-led and focused organizations that are building young people's political power across the country. When we last spoke, it was after the 2018 election. So fair amount has happened in the world of politics and the world generally. We're talking about pre-COVID, during Trump time that we talked and after a successful midterm election. Can you tell me just a little bit about how your world has changed in terms of your group and politics and just catch me up on what I've missed since talking to you then. Oh my goodness. I can't believe it's been that long first. Um, and wow, does 2018 actually seem like decades ago? <laughs> well, since 2018, the the network that I run, we were frankly all getting ready for 2020. And folks were putting in a lot of time and energy to make sure that Organizations were strong, organizations were able to scale and to really welcome in and train up young people for one of the biggest organizing moments in our lifetimes, which was turning out voters uh, for that 2020 election. Of course, the pandemic happened during that time and what that meant for us. Listen, like most marginalized communities, people want to engage in person. And so there was a lot of shifting that had to be done to make sure that Yes, young people are on their phones a ton, but uh, we needed to be able to reach them in different ways. And so a lot of organizing went digital. Of course, everything went remote. 
there were upticks in like mail programs, whether for voter registration or information for people to turn out. It just a ton of shifting happened as, of course, there was massive movements and uprisings and then a lot of like pain and suffering in our communities. And so, you know, when I think about the last couple of years, I feel like I'm just constantly reminded of the resilience of so many of our communities. I think we're tired of being resilient, right? Um, There's like this level of awe that I have for how young people organized in these really tough times and with incredible results. Like in a pandemic, we saw an 11 point increase in turnout from the 2016 elections to the 2020 elections. Um, 50% of young people voted. It's amazing. (laughs) And I hope the biggest thing that we take away of what's happened is a lot of the stereotypes about young people being disengaged and unmotivated and being non-voters. I hope that's all thrown out the door (laughs) because they proved themselves of all times last year. What do you think accounts for that turnout increase from one election to the next presidential? I think there are so many pieces that, that fit together to create, you know, that, that puzzle since the 2016 election, Young people have just, this next generation has been more engaged and motivated and wanting to make change in their communities because they've just been inundated by harm. And it doesn't mean that the harm started with the Trump administration by any means, but that just the level, the amount of harm that people were experiencing was just so, so huge. And so I think we saw more young people taking to the streets. We saw the the creation of new places for young people to organize from, whether it's like new groups in our network, you know, groups that did not exist in 2016 that exist today in my network include groups like Leaders Igniting Transformation in Wisconsin, Minnesota Youth Collective, which is in the Twin Cities, you know, like these local organizing homes just weren't there. I mean, Move Texas um, was Move San Antonio in 2016 and like a little itty bitty staff of two and in one city. And now they think they're in six or seven cities across Texas with like 20 staff. So there was just more places for young people to go to organize, to get trained, um, to activate and motivate their peers. That's been a big part of it. It should be easy to want to find a place to create change with in your communities. Um, And for so long, those places didn't exist. And this is not just our network, to be clear, right? There were groups like March for Our Lives, like the Sunrise Movement that were created. There was continued organizing by groups like uh, United We Dream, like the Movement for Black Lives, right? There's just been, um, I think, more options for people to make their voices heard uh, in really tough times. And I think just like this strong desire from the next generation to say, we're not going to put up with these horrors that are being inflicted on our communities and we're going to mobilize together to make change. That's, I think, some of what we've been seeing across our network. When I talked to you a couple of years ago, I remember asking you something about like your future and how long you wanted to stick with this. And you, your answer was something like, I want this enterprise to be stable and strong. And I want the organizing groups in the network to also be. How close are you to that, to having attained that? I hope that we're significantly closer. I feel very lucky. I have an incredible team. Like I am just constantly in awe of how thoughtful they are with the work. A lot of what we do at the Alliance is we partner alongside these local youth organizations. We do work to train their staff um, to build community with them, you know, and 
for a lot of youth organizations, you're hiring folks who are brand new to, you know, fundraising, who are brand new to a lot of the behind the scenes things that you need to do to run an organization. And my team does a lot of that one-on-one support to give young people those tools to thrive in, in that work. Um, and I'm really proud of the staff that I have who have built out these programs and structures to give young people that support, whether it's my finance director or my comms director, everybody's got their hands in to supporting the work to uplift and tell the story of what young people are doing to share learnings across state lines. So I feel really good about what I'm leaving behind. I feel really good about the growth that we've had. And I feel really good about the organization that the new ED is going to inherit once they're selected. What are you going on to do? I think the biggest thing, aside from like not really knowing, which is most, which is real, um, I'm trying to give myself a little time. But the most important thing is I'm going to be getting out of the way. As executive directors, the organizations that we run, they, they become part of you and in ways that I just didn't expect when I took this role, having never been an ED before. And one of the the greatest gifts that my predecessor gave me was that he was there whenever I needed support. And he was completely out of the way. So that way I could form my own identity. I could build my own relationship with the organization. I could create my own strategy alongside my team. I am forever grateful for that gift. I know it will be hard. I literally was starting to get emotional when we were working on budgeting for next year. I'm like, I'm not going to be around to see this budget through, um, which is like the weirdest thing to say and probably one of the most peak ED things to say, like getting an emotional about a budget. Come on. But it's not about the budget, right? It's about, yeah. it's about what you're doing and who you are. It's very akin to sort of founder syndrome. You do better by getting out of the way and it takes a certain amount of self-knowledge to, to do that. I, I, not sure I've always had that. You want to honor that. And, it, and I mean, you want to hire well. And are you part of the hiring process or are you letting your staff do that? Yeah. So I helped draft the, the job description with a lot of input. We have, because we're a network, um, the people who are engaged in this process are representatives from my board, from my staff, and from the EDs of the network organizations we support. And um, so I helped draft the job description. I pushed it around and that's it. (laughs) So this task force, we call it our transition task force. They're the ones who are in the interviews. They're the ones who are uplifting candidates to move along, Um, really trying to stay out of the way so that there's no bias from me getting in the middle of that process. Have you uh, generated good candidates? I sure hear that we have. Um, I know folks are excited about the applicants that have come in. And so when my people are excited, I'm excited. So I remain excited about the future of the org. Even if you're not going to get in the way, what advice would you offer to your successor about what you found works and what doesn't work leading this organization? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons in my leadership has then it's okay to ask for help, especially as like a woman of color, as a Latina, you know, like imposter syndrome is real. And we get into these roles and start to question. And, you know, there's some not great people out there who help us question, like, should I be here? Am I here because I know what I'm talking about? Am I here because of my identity? Like there, 
there's just like all of these little demons, right, that get in your head. And so it makes it even scarier to ask for help um, because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're talking about. You don't want to undermine people's faith in you. And um, that was like some hard lessons I had early on about the need to ask for help and how powerful that can be in building relationships and building trust and building like, frankly, your crew of your biggest champions of the people who you can strategize alongside and lean on for guidance. And so I'd say to the new ED, don't be afraid to ask for help because I know there's different programs out there. People say, oh, we're going to, here's a a training to help you become an ED or here's a thing to prepare. I just, I truly, that's very nice. There's just nothing you can do to really prepare for some of the chaos of a role like this where, you know, one minute it might be a, a very stressful call with a donor. The next, it might be an HR challenge. The next, it might be a program focus. The next might be a press call, right? You're just like hopping from, um, issue to issue. And like I said, I'm lucky I have a great team. So I have a lot of support in the many things my organization does, but asking for help is so, so just so important. Creating a community of peers is so important um, because it is a hard and can frequently be a lonely job. What kind of community of peers have you created? Yeah. So when I first got this role, I was looking around in a lot of national progressive spaces and there were not very many executive directors of color. And then maybe about a year or so in, I started to see a few more come up. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. We should like grab drinks. We should have a happy hour together. And I kept saying that to a couple of friends who had become these EDs. And at one point, my friend Chris, who is the ED at Ballot Initiative Strategy Center at BISC, she was like, will you just organize the happy hour? You keep talking about it. We just, just, you need to do it. Like she just called sort of called me out. And so two happy hours turned into a retreat space for about uh, 16 other national EDs of color and progressive spaces. And those are my people. Those are my people that like, I strategize with that I ask for help for like the behind the scenes work stuff to the more public work stuff. We strategize about how to navigate through progressive spaces, how to deal with different donors. But yeah, I have a peer group of national EDs of color who wouldn't be here without them. Now I had talked to Chris at BISC about this actually on the podcast. And, uh, I didn't remember that you were part of that, but that makes all the sense in the world. And in the for-profit world, I've been part of some entrepreneurial forums where you talk to peers and something very similar, really helpful to me. Like I would never have known that it would be helpful. I was not a joiner of such things before I found the stresses of, of running an enterprise for myself. But I'm glad you found that. And I hope that continues. Does it make you want to run another organization to be an ED or, or something like that again? Or does it make you want to run away from such jobs? I mean, I'm definitely running away in the short term. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My next gig will not be to be an executive director. But I don't know, maybe in the future, I, I really, you know, one of the things I get to do at the Alliance is I get to support a network of young executive directors across the country. And it's been so wonderful to just honestly be their champions and, you know, be there for them if they have questions. And um, so I, I love the idea of at least trying to support folks who are in these roles in some way, shape or form, even if it's like a personal mentorship type relationship. But yeah, at least for now, I'm not trying to be an ED in your term. 
What do you and those executive directors that are in your network know about youth mobilization that the average person doesn't? What have you learned in these sort of roles, would you say? I would say that there's, we are not short on young people who want to be engaged, right? Like those, all the stereotypes of, you know, young people don't do this or they're lazy or they're on the phone or this or that, but there is, there's so many young people who are eager to make change in their communities that, you know, I still, I will always hope that we're on the other side of the stereotypes, but they do persist. Um, And it's really just about, are we creating the opportunities for them to engage? Are we listening to them and their ideas and, you know, being thoughtful partners in this work? Those are the things I think it's important for us to all reflect on because as folks who are in it, there's just so many brilliant young leaders that are out there um, that are eager for support. And so I think that's like one of the biggest takeaways of, of working with these EDs and these groups is that young people are there. It's just, are there places for them to go to continue to build power and to continue to lead movement? And uh, yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that maybe we know that others at least don't embrace as much. (laughs) I assume that when you think about youth, you think a lot more about progressive youth than about Trump supporting youth, let's say. But both make up our country and both are going to be part and parcel of our future. How do you think about those young people who are attracted to the to the other side? To be honest, I don't think about them very much. And the reason why I don't is because there are so many more young people who are values aligned. And by values aligned, I mean, so many issues have become partisan, frankly, that don't need to be. We work in voting rights. Why on earth are we fighting over whether or not voting is accessible? The amount of issues that have moved since I've been doing organizing, um, and I'm an elder millennial, so it's been a minute, but that have moved from becoming kind of a bipartisan, everybody cares about them to like, oh no, this is an intense left versus right issue. The young people who are like, no, I'm going to fight to make sure people can't access the right to vote. Like, I don't pay them any mind because there's way more young people who are out there who are wanting to make sure that people can live with dignity in this country, who are wanting to make sure that our democracy is accessible to all. It is such a small, loud minority of folks when there are just way too many unengaged or, and by unengaged, I mean like we, the larger ecosystem are not engaging them. They would like to be engaged, but there are too many young people out there who have a desire to get engaged who are not, and they are who I'd rather focus my time and energy on. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about young people that you haven't mentioned? Uh, There's so many. So one that young people are all in college and on some type of residential college campus. That's don't get me wrong. The groups in our network run a lot of program on college campuses, but um, you know, there are a lot of young people out there who just don't go to college or maybe they go for a couple of years and they don't finish it. Or maybe they uh, don't go right after high school and they go later in life, right? And so really broadening that out, especially as, you know, I live in DC, I've been here for a long time. Um, Just trying to remind folks about like what 
the average young person's experiences are. Maybe it's a community college, definitely a commuter college if they're going, right? It's people having kids in their mid to late 20s. Super normal. (laughs) Not as something we talk about in like our fancier like political spaces, including myself. I'm in my (laughs) my 30s. I haven't had a kid yet. Hope to, right? But like just to remind folks that, you know, the experiences that young people have had, um, there's like both the life markers, which can be very different from a lot of the progressive circles I know I find myself in, but then also just the experiences of like, for millennials, we are in our second economic recession. <laughs> that has an impact on our lifetimes. Gen Z is now growing up in a recession, uh, coming into adulthood in a recession, just like we did, right? There are these big moments that happen in our country that greatly impact our lives. 9-11 greatly impacted my life um, and my generation's life as a lot of my friends ended up going into the military. Things like economic recessions, things like our climate being in crisis right now, right? There's all of this greatly impacts the trajectory of younger generations. And so, you know, I think it's so important to remind folks that like, yeah, younger generations have been struggling for a while. That older millennials saw their parents lose their homes during the housing crisis. Younger millennials were living at home with their parents when that happened, right? When I talk to some of the young people in our network about issues like student debt, some folks are really cranky about like, it's not our bit, like we shouldn't care if people have student debt. You could have made other decisions. There are young people that we work with whose parents made some decisions about paying their taxes or not, which meant they did not get any type of financial aid to go to college, Right. Like, and so all they could do is take out loans to get by. That there are these decisions that are made by prior generations that absolutely have a massive impact on the ability of millennials, of Gen Z to just thrive. And that is like what is so rooted in a lot of the organizing that we see with young people is kind of wrestling with a lot of the challenges that they've basically been handed in every single part of their lives and wanting to demand something better. There are a lot of challenges right now, economic and disease and things like that. And when there are, typically the party in power loses ground. The easy prediction to make about 2022 and 2024 is further out, so harder to know. But if certainly if we're in recession going into then, then you'd have to bet on the opponent. How do you think about youth in the big elections coming up? Yeah. So oftentimes parties lose power when there are challenges happening in our country because they don't respond to the level that those challenges demand. And I think that's been, unfortunately, the story of Democrats being in power (laughs) um, is that they put forward these pretty weak proposals or now when there is actually some pretty visionary work in these proposals, whether it's about dealing with paid leave, whether it's demanding that immigration stay in the reconciliation package, like they cave. And as we get ready for next year, Democrats have to rise to the level of the challenges to actually change people's lives. That lives, like young people need to feel that their lives have been made better because Democrats are in power right now, if they really want to make a difference next year. Whether it's issues like canceling student debt, like the administration can just do that 
People have been not paying student debt, their student debt off for more than a year right now. Do Democrats really think it's wise for the economy, let alone the election, to just say, hey, we're going to start charging you those student debt payments again, when they literally just don't have to. So what we need is Democrats to rise to the occasion of the pain that people are experiencing right now and actually make lives better. If they don't do that, yeah, then Democrats absolutely could lose their places in power next year. I mean, there's something that that gets my back up about that answer. I'll tell you why. Because one, the vast, vast majority of Democrats would like to, right? And we have a majority of like zero in the Senate and five in the House. And we got a couple ornery people that are stopping it. And for a electorate to turn against a party and put in something worse by far seems irrational to me, right? Like the, the Democrats are trying pretty hard to make a bunch of positive moves on some of the issues that you're talking about and many, many others. Do we want to be sympathetic to people who, who can't see that? I mean, yes, there are some people who are very much are trying very hard and I just I remain in awe of the Progressive Caucus and really putting a line in the sand about, frankly, what people deserve. Like, we are evicting people during a pandemic. It's inexcusable. What's happening in Del Rio in Texas right now, the treatment of those Haitian refugees is inexcusable. Um, I heard Secretary Mayorkas say that, that Haiti is fine to send people back to. It's, it's not. It's not. So... Yes, there are Democrats who absolutely are in the way, but we need to be, this is where the president needs to be stepping up as the head of the Democratic Party to get his party in line. Um, because people have just been through so much. And how I think about this, it's like, there's, yes, populations of folks who maybe be deciding between voting between Democrats and Republicans. That's like super real. Those people exist. But what I think about when I think of the young people that we organize and the friends that we have, in many cases, it's folks taking the extra time that they have in their days to put the work in to turn out other voters. And I think we don't think about them a ton. In many cases, those are people who maybe can't vote themselves. And then they see how their communities are being treated. It's like, what are we going to do to motivate people? Yes, to vote for folks who are going to try to pass policies that are in alignment with their values. But then what are we going to do to motivate people to take the limited time that they have from their very full lives to try to convince others to vote because maybe they are disengaged, because maybe they haven't felt the impact of this administration? It is not good enough for us to say, do you want this mediocre candidate or this terrible candidate? We have to give them so much more that to vote for. This is the result of years of, of the Democratic Party being in this place. It's not new that Joe Manchin is acting like this. It's not new that cinema is acting like this. We've had a lot of time for leaders in the party to prepare for electeds like them. Um, but what we need, especially as we get to next year, is for folks to be inspired especially as we're talking about saving these seats. Why the heck is Senator Hassan, why did she vote against an increase in the minimum wage in New Hampshire? Like, why'd she do that? <laughs> There's no reason for that. And we have 
incredible young people in the New Hampshire youth movement who know exactly what's on the line, but who are economically struggling. Like she needs to show, she needs to make the case about why she deserves their vote. For me, I think it's unfair of us to put this on the voters when we actually need to be putting the onus on the electeds, that it's the electeds who are making these decisions to, frankly, make our people's lives harder. And they are the ones that need to hold the responsibility there for their actions. I'm struggling with the idea that all young people are aligned with the most progressive goals. I think some are, uh, but I'm not sure that the country is even though I would like them to be. Like, I understand the angle that you're coming from, and I understand why you'd want to hold a senator's feet to the fire on that, but but I'm not sure if we understand the country fully if we think that that's where the center of gravity is entirely. I mean, I think this gets to, like, what I was saying before about, for some reason, some of these issues have been framed as, like, a super radical left idea. $15 an hour as a minimum wage is about a $33,000 a year salary for someone working 40 hours a week. $33,000. Like that's like nothing. Um, that's not sufficient for pretty much any part of this country. And I've lived in very cost-effective places like in South Texas. I grew up in Bakersfield, California. Like $33,000 is just not a lot of money. Issues like paid leave that's not radical. We are so far behind compared to other countries. Trying to make sure people have a pathway to citizenship. Like this is something that we've been pushing for well over a decade. I want us to like resist the notion that treating people with dignity is some radical left idea because it's just not. One of the most concerning developments since the last election has to do with laws around voting that have come into place and they directly affect young people and people in marginalized communities. There are so many states which are making it harder to vote, harder to register, and so on. How do you think that is actually going to affect voter turnout and what can we do about it? This is one of those examples of that we have senators holding up voting rights legislation. Let me tell you the impact of what some of those laws look like right now. So we have a group in Kansas. They're called Loud Light. They're amazing. Um, They've done incredible work to register young people across the state of Kansas to vote. On July 1st, Loud Light had to stop registering people to vote. And the reason why they had to do that is because their state legislature passed a law that basically says, if anyone mistakes you for an election official, and you're not one, then you're going to go to jail, you're going to get a fine, and you're going to get charged with a felony. Now, I strongly believe it is the responsibility of government to actively make sure people are able to participate in our elections. Government should be the ones registering voters. Honestly, I don't believe in voter registration. I think it should go away. The government has enough information on us. I'm with you there. Yeah, it should just go away. But while we have it, Government should be responsible for registering voters. Government should be responsible for making voting accessible. Because government fails at this, this is where groups like mine have to step in. This is why groups like Loudlight have to register young people to vote. But they've literally been unable to do so since July 1st because of this law that's passed. And now they're fighting it in the courts to try to get it thrown out. But we are approaching October. 
So when we ask, like, will these laws impact people's ability to turn out? Heck yeah, because these are people we could have been registering for the past few months to vote that we're not doing so now. That's that's the impact of some of these laws, because government certainly isn't stepping in to register those people. And now Loudlight can't do that in Kansas. So yep, they're totally going to have an impact. Now, are we still going to try to organize people to turn out? We absolutely are, but we cannot out-organize voter suppression. And that's why we need the Freedom to Vote Act to pass. That's why the federal government has to take a stand because we literally are unable to register people. And it's not just for the federal elections next year that we're thinking about. It absolutely is. But did you know that in Kansas, in August of next year, there's going to be a constitutional amendment on the ballot to take away the right to choose an abortion in Kansas? In August. It's not supposed to be on the ballot in August. Constitutional measures are supposed to be like on a November election. But this is where we also see how the right comes together to really just chip away at our values, at our freedoms in so many different areas. And so, um, you know, Loudlight has been leading incredible work, both to try to protect the freedom to vote in Kansas, to also work alongside groups to make sure that abortions are accessible in Kansas, because this is a state that is very pro-choice and has a history of believing that people should be able to access abortion care. But they're now preventing us from registering voters there. They've put a ballot measure on the ballot in August. Students are on campus in the fall, usually not by August, right? So they're literally just trying to continue to limit who's available to vote as this horrific amendment is going to be on the ballot, as the Supreme Court has just like given the thumbs up to the horrible measure in Texas, right? Like all of this is intentional. So will it impact turnout? Absolutely well, if the federal government doesn't get its act together and actually protect our freedom to vote. I'm not too optimistic that that that's going to happen. Certainly, we can't get 60 votes in the Senate to do it. There's not 10 decent Republicans to vote for voting rights, is there? Which is just unacceptable. And these are these moments where I'm like, if we can't get there with 10 Republicans, get them on the record. Get them on the record of opposing things like early voting periods. Get them on the record of opposing things like they will go on the record. They don't give a shit. I mean, there are some who act like they care until they take a vote. Like I love, let's get Romney on the record. Let's get Murkowski on the record. Let's like, let's get them on the record about this because they front and they say they care. Like show us literally show us. Um, and also like this again, to the point that we talked about before is where the president really has to step in and we got to make a case to get rid of the filibuster on voting rights. We just have to. We are not registering people to vote in some states right now. To the theme of not being able to organize, yeah, like our folks in Kansas would love to be registering people right now, but they cannot because they could be thrown in jail. That is what is happening in the United States in 2021. You got me rather depressed in, in, in only a few minutes here. <laughs> it's just so frustrating, isn't it? I understand that we are about to hit National Voter Registration Day. Tell me about what that is and what you've had to do with it and what might be coming up. 
Yeah. So National Voter Registration Day for 2021 is Tuesday, September 28th. And this is a day that the Alliance co-founded with other organizations. Oh my gosh, I feel like we're probably approaching a decade at this point. It's a day to just make sure we're welcoming in companies, state and local governments, uh, influencers, like everybody basically to give them the opportunity to say, hey, today's a great time to register to vote that every state has different deadlines to register to vote, which is also ridiculous. Again, it is ridiculous we have to register to vote. But if we're going to, this is a chance for us to kind of create a cultural moment where we're hopefully inundating people with now's the time to register because it's before all these deadlines hit. So that way people can then be registered in time uh, in advance of November elections. So we're co-founders of the day. Uh, What the Alliance does right now is we run in partnership with Students Learn Students Vote, something we call the Campus Takeover. And we give mini grants out to student organizations and different organizations of young people across the country who are creating events to register people to vote at. So maybe they're going to do some really fun viz with like balloons and costumes. Maybe they're going to do a bunch of class wraps. Maybe they're going to order a ton of pizza to attract people. And of course, everyone can have that pizza, uh, but attract people over to uh, wherever they're organizing, but to just focus on getting as many people registered to vote as possible. Sounds like a good thing, and I hope a lot comes of it. How would you compare the infrastructure of which your enterprise is an important part around youth mobilization on our side versus on the Republican side? Oh, this is one of the things that like drives me the most bananas because we have way more young people who are with us and way less resources going to them. <laughs> so the right has dumped a ton of money into supporting conservative young people. We see this show up in groups like Turning Point USA, who are on campuses across the country. At one point, Turning Point was dumping money into student body elections (laughs) to try to influence student body, like president elections, to get conservative leaders in like on college campuses. This organization also will get the who's who of the Republican Party to every single space that they're in. And so there's like a a couple of layers here. There is the sheer amount of money that the right drops in to young people. There is the leadership development work that they do to literally create their bench on the right. And then there is like the love and attention and the fandom so that the top people on the right are available. Meanwhile, on the left, our groups are struggling to raise money after historic amounts of resources going into the sector in 2020. Now, groups are struggling to raise money as we both or have to organize to hold electeds accountable today, as we have to work to continue to bring in young organizers and train them up, and also as we prepare for next year and for the elections happening next year. A lot of some of the shinier people in power haven't exactly spent a lot of time with young people and hearing, you know, what their concerns are, what their demands are, what their needs are. And so, um, yeah, the discrepancies between the left and the right are vast. Um, and this has always been an area where the left has needed to step up. How do we turn this around? Honestly, it's just not that hard. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's that, you know, philanthropy needs to be looking at where they're moving their resources. People with individual wealth need to be looking at where they're moving their resources. I mean, millennials and Generation Z, right, are like making up the greatest segments of our electorate. They should be resourced as such. It's the elected officials. They need to be regularly engaging and listening to young people. Uh, they need to be looking at to what we've named before, like, what is the impact of climate change on this generation? Maybe we should listen to them as they're fighting to keep our planet around for the future. I don't want to seem like flippant, but it's literally just not that hard. We just got to move more resources into these groups. We got to give young people more venues to be able to directly engage with with the leadership. And we got to make sure that we're listening to them in terms of the policies that we're uplifting um, and prioritizing. I think it's easy to be pessimistic right now. It's easy to, to look at stalemate in Congress. It's easy to look at so many challenges, success the Republicans have had in the states that they're wielding in really disreputable ways. What makes you feel most optimistic, though? I mean, yeah, I named a lot of pretty terrible things that are happening, right? But being part of youth organizing, being part of that community, seeing the incredible work that they're leading, that just gives me so much faith. So, you know, it looks like a lot of different things, right? So I, for example, there's a ton of attention, rightly so, on the terrible voting rights or the voter suppression bills that passed in Texas, right? And before then, there were all those Texas legislators, those Dems that came to DC to like flee the Capitol, right? That was incredible. They would not have come here if not for the organizers who continued to push them and frankly made them brave in that state. And you know what? Those organizers were really young. (laughs) Those were the organizers of Move Texas and of Texas Rising. Like those were the young people who are junior staff at a lot of the multi-generational organizations that continued to show up and they made them brave. That inspires me. Yes, we have terrible bills that have passed in states like Kansas and states like Montana. But in advance of their passing, groups like Ford, Montana, and Loud Light were using every organizing tool possible to prevent that from happening. And then once they passed, now they're engaging in litigation. But it's also just like the joyful work that is happening. Yesterday in D.C., there was a big march for immigration and to keep the um, immigration language in the reconciliation package. And... I am always in awe of the organizers of United We Dream because they are so committed to their, like, yes, it's about themselves and their families and their communities, but the joy that they bring and and their insistence that you will not dehumanize us and that if we can't bring joy to this fight, then like, what is this fight, right? I just, that for me is like what can be different about youth organizing. There are some really hard times that we are in, Absolutely that young people will continue to bring the joy because joy is a part of the world that we are building. And if we cannot embrace that joy now, even in tough times, then we're not going to be able to reach that world, right? We have to start to putting into practice what we're fighting for if we're actually going to achieve that. And that to me is like part of why I'd encourage folks to like, just follow our Instagram. We're constantly uplifting the great work of the network Young people of Minnesota Youth Collective have been key to fighting to get this charter amendment on the ballot to re-envision public safety in Minneapolis. And it's gone to the courts and it was pulled off and now it's back on. Like, young people are part of doing that. It's so excellent. The actual young organizers, the wins, that's a lot of what brings me hope. 
you've been very positive and and marked the uh, quite a wide variety of the groups that are in your network. If you were going to point to one that you think is really acing it, who would that be? Oh my God, there's not just one. Sorry, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It is because they each, listen, each community is different. And while there's definitely things that tie young people together across the country of what they care about, who they're organizing, how they're engaging, it just, look, so if, so for example, if you really care about the treatment of people who are incarcerated, like Ohio Student Association is leading brilliant work on those efforts right now. If you care about making sure that people who are incarcerated are able to access the ballot, because why on earth would we ever take away the right to vote? Check out Next Step in Oregon and Chicago Votes. If you care about climate change and its impact on our communities, Move Texas is leading brilliant work on the state level, but also the county level. There's just too much good (laughs) out there. I like that answer. Um, Is there a question that I haven't asked that I should have? Gosh, we've talked about so much. I'm hoping like this energy I'm bringing is just inspiring folks and making people want to follow and and learn more. And if there's young people listening, check out our website, alliancefeathaction.org. We have a map of where our groups are located and people would love to welcome you in to those organizations. If you have resources and want to donate, folks would love to take them. Um, If you just need some joy, follow us on our Instagram page because Daniela, our digital director, is constantly uplifting the good stuff on IG and on Twitter. Um, But yeah, I think you've hit on a ton. Well, I always appreciate the chance to catch up with you. I'm very grateful for the work that you've put in over the last bunch of years trying to get our youth out. And I really wish you the best in your journey as it goes forward. So thanks for what you do. Oh, I so appreciate that. And thanks for having me back on again. It's great to be in space with you. That was Sarah Adello. Sarah is at allianceforyouthaction.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.